everyone, and welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media on uh, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's facebook.com backslash mediumcoolpod. You can search Medium Cool Pod and we'll pop up on Instagram and at mediumcoolpod on Twitter. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. And please, if you get a second, please give us a rating and a review wherever you're listening to this. Follow, subscribe, whatever you can do. All of it will help us out. Um, all that said, uh, I'm really excited about today's episode. We are going to actually continue finally um, the Ingmar Bergman marathon that we started last year, like last summer or last spring or something. And Matthew Sosi and I decided to sit down and talk about the last three movies back to back. Well, we ended up talking way too long, so uh, I split it into two episodes. <laughs> so even if at the end of our long-form conversation it sounds like we're going to continue it all, just know that I ended up cutting it off, and I'll just save it for a couple weeks. But uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about Cries and Whispers and uh, Scenes from a Marriage, the original Bergman film that, of course, was a, uh, a, a miniseries that came out with uh, Oscar Isaacs. Uh, I Sorry, What? Oscar Isaac and uh, Jessica Chastain that came out last year as well. Uh, it's based on this Bergman film, and and it's a it's a movie that Bergman did, but it's also uh, there was also a an accompanying uh, miniseries for TV because it was made for TV, um, and then he edited it into a movie that was half the time of the miniseries, but it's still like three hours long. The point is. Um, I'm excited to talk about both of these. I think it's going to be really great. And we're finally wrapping up the uh, the Bergman Marathon. So we're going to do um, movies, what is that, five and six. Okay, there are seven total. We're doing five and six today. And then next week, I'm going to have my friend Matthew Putman on. He is actually a musician. Um, you know, he toured for years. We met whenever he was in, like, his first band, basically, that toured. Um I met him way back in like 99 or 2000 or something. And then over time, you know, we were friends and, uh, you know, he would uh, hang out with me a bit whenever he would play shows and I'd go to him. And then life took over and we just kind of, you know, drifted apart or whatever. And we were, it was never that we weren't friends anymore, but we just didn't talk for a really long time. And then uh, at some point, uh, oh, it was when I played with his brother, who's the vocalist for the band Norma Jean. And my band played with Norma Jean. And it just made me, you know, I, I befriended Corey, the singer for Norma Jean, and then uh, Matthew had commented on some of Corey's things. I'm like, oh my god, I never even thought about reaching out to Matthew on like Facebook or something. And so, uh, yeah, we've been friends again for a while, and uh, I'm going to have him on next week. Yes, he's a musician, uh, but much like Bane or uh, Andy Williams or Greg Bennick, I mean, these guys like movies also. So Matthew Putman and I will talk a bit about music. Uh, we'll talk uh, about all kinds of stuff, I'm sure, but we'll definitely be digging into movies. He is a movie fan, and I'm excited to see uh, you know, some movies that really changed his life. It's something I'm kind of aiming to go for. And then the week after that, we're going to have Matthew Sosi back on to do the, f- the final film of Bergman. Then we're done with Bergman, okay, for now. Well, yeah, yeah, I think that's going to... Yeah. <laughs> I have more Bergman to watch because I want to do like a top five for you guys, uh, but I'll probably do it on that episode. The point is, uh, yeah, we're going to be finishing up Bergman, and that means we get to start new marathons. So I'm really excited about this year because this year sparks uh, the 50th anniversary since Martin Scorsese's first 
official theatrical release, which was Boxcar Bertha in 1972. But also, he was born in 1942, and uh, this year marks his uh, 80th birth year, right? So, or anniversary of his birth, or whatever the fuck you want to say. The point is, he has like double anniversaries for this year, right? So I'm probably going to do a marathon on Scorsese, and I'll bring someone in for that. And then uh, I also want to do something for Hitchcock, because Hitchcock's always somebody I'm interested in looking into more. I've seen uh, so many of his movies, and there are still so many more. And so I'm going to make a few marathons about uh, Hitchcock, because uh, if you look on IMDb, he was credited in 1922. That is 100 years ago, okay? He was credited in 1922 for his first film. It was unfinished, but here's the thing. He was in the industry. He was in the business. So this year marks 100 years since he was credited being in the business, and I'm really excited to uh, celebrate some of uh, Hitch's stuff. So we have a lot of stuff coming up. I'm super excited. Of course, I'm going to be covering 2022 movies, but today I'm actually going back to last year to a film that was released on Christmas or something, uh, limited, just so it could get into the Academy Awards, I'm sure. But it off it kind of wide release uh, on like January 14th or something. I don't remember. I'll tell you guys exactly when I look at my notes. But the point is, I'm going to be talking here in just a moment about Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. I finally got around to seeing it, and I got to say, uh, well, I'll, I'll save it for, for my thoughts on the movie, okay? Um, but we'll see if my top 10 has changed. Um, anyways, all right, guys, uh, without further ado, I'm going to get into the tragedy of Macbeth, and after that, we will see what is up with Matthew Sosie and talk some Bergman. So here we go. All right, everybody, I'm going to talk about Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth really quickly. And I really am not going to kind of, I'm going to try not to at least uh, be super long-winded about this one because this one is a pretty easy one to talk about. It's The Tragedy of Macbeth from last year, 2021, officially wide-released uh, this year um, in, I think, January. Uh, the Tragedy of Macbeth is direct, written and directed by Joel Cohen only, not Ethan Cohen. Usually the Cohen brothers work together, but this is one of Joel Cohen's solo ventures here. It's based on the uh, play Macbeth by William Shakespeare, of course. The cast, Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand, Bertie Carvel, uh, uh, Alex Hassel, uh, Corey Hawkins, Harry Melling, and Brendan Gleeson, among others. There is a lot going on here. Like I said, it was uh, December 25th, 2021. It was limited release. January 14th of this year was the wide release. And if you want to watch it, you can watch it streaming on Apple TV Plus if you have that. So definitely go check that out. Of course, I'm sure you can rent it uh, other places online too. And uh, Macbeth, the Thane of Glams, uh, that sounds hilarious actually. It looks like Glamis, but they pronounce it Glams. Um, but it sounds like I'm saying the Thane of Glam. Anyways, uh, Macbeth, the Thane of Glam. Gla <laughs> I'm fucking this up already. Macbeth, the Thane of Glams, receives a, pro a prophecy from a trio of witches that one day he will become king of Scotland. Consumed by ambition and spurred to action by his wife, Macbeth murders his king and takes the throne for himself. And that is a very simplified version of this. If you know anything about William Shakespeare, you know that these get 
very complicated, and there's a lot going on, and it's kind of amazing what Joel Cohn was actually able to do with Shakespeare's play, because of course Shakespeare's play is much longer. So what we have is Joel Cohen kind of reducing this down to its bare bones and really telling this story, I think, very well. Um, yes, there are a lot of details missing, maybe, if you know the Macbeth story, but I don't know it that well. I mostly know it through other films that were made about Macbeth. I've never read Macbeth. So, uh, yeah, so uh, I think Joel Cohen does a fantastic job here. Um, no, you know, spoiler alert, I'm a big fan of this movie. Um, and I'm going to talk about a few things. I'm going to talk about the performances. I want to talk about the production a bit. Um, and I just want to finish up here with Joel Cohen. It's very rare that we see Joel Cohen go out on his own. Usually, you know, we're dealing with both uh, Joel and Ethan Cohen or the Cohen brothers, as we call them. They did Fargo, The Big Lebowski, um, you know, Barton Fink, uh, Raising Arizona, uh, No Country for Old Men. I mean, just so many things. Burn After Reading, everything. So, uh, yeah, Joel Cohen going on his own, I thought was really interesting. I was uh, very excited. This, as I mentioned uh, last week, this was on my most anticipated of the year uh, in 2021. And uh, I am glad that I was anticipating it because it is really great. Uh, and, you know, it's partially great because of just some incredible visuals in this movie. Uh, the the music by Carter Burwell is just perfect. I think you know it's it's pretty subtle. Uh, he did he did stuff for uh, Three Billboards Outside. What's the movie? Uh, outside Ebbing, Missouri. He did Carol. Uh, he did Fargo. Uh, you know he did he did several different things that we would be familiar with. Anomalisa. Um, you know all kinds of stuff. And uh, the music here is perfect. It's tasteful. It's not too much. It really kind of hits home and hits exactly where it needs to be. And that music is really accompanied well uh, by Bruno Del, Del Bonnell, I think is how you say it. Uh, Bruno Del Bonnell. Uh, and uh, he's the uh, director of photography here. And he did uh, Inside Lewin Davis. He did the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. So he's worked with them before. But he also worked with a guy that I really love. And he has a movie coming out soon, Jean-Pierre Jeunet. Uh, because his film Amelie uh, actually is the movie that got me into movies. In 2001, uh, that movie came out. I got into movies in 2003, and it was because of Amelie. So Jean-Pierre Genet has a special place in my heart. And this guy, uh, Del Bonnell, did uh, the cinematography for A Very Long Engagement and Amelie. Uh, man, he did so many things. I'm looking here. He did Big Eyes and Dark Shadows. So he's worked with um, Tim Burton quite a bit. Uh, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff. The Cat's Meow, which was a uh, Peter Bogdanovich movie. I mean, this dude's kind of all over the place. But this movie, The Tragedy of Macbeth, I'm telling you. Dude, from the opening moment of this foggy battle battleground, and you see characters fade into sight because they're walking through this thick fog, and eventually they run into... My favorite character of the entire film. I'm pretty sure it is a lot of people's favorite characters. And you know what? It's really the tragedy here is not Macbeth. It's that I didn't mention this person up front. Catherine Hunter. Okay? Catherine Hunter is the champion. If she does not win all of the awards, period, um, I'm going to be pissed. Uh, if, if you have seen like Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, she's in other ones. 
Um, but she is Mrs. Fig. She is the squib, as they call them, the 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 witch who can't use basically doesn't have magic. Um, but uh, she's the one that helps Harry Potter get out of of his. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The um, there's like a, a a a judge trying to like indict him for using magic outside of school, and she kind of comes in and helps out. She's one of his neighbors. And uh, Mrs. Fig, you, you'd never think watching that movie and seeing Mrs. Fig, I mean, she's great for like the few minutes she's in the movie, but you would never think that Catherine Hunter, the actress behind that character, is so great. And when you watch this, you see these witches, and it is incredible what Joel Cohen does, because it's so subtle, but at the same time, it's like there's some effects at work, but it looks so good that it just looks like he has like a contortionist or something. But the way that this witch is introduced is eerie, man. I mean, it's it's just really crazy. She she's like contorting her body and she's talking with this thick British, just rugged voice that like she smokes cigarettes her whole life. And uh, it's like this very kind of androgynous voice, too. It almost it's like kind of feminine, kind of masculine. And it's just this like perfect, perfect depiction of the character that we want to see here. And uh, the way that Catherine Hunter performs this is awesome, but Joel Cohen's vision for the witches is awesome. And Catherine Hunter actually plays two characters. I actually thought uh, they were the same character, but it's credited as two, uh, so that makes a lot of sense to me now in retrospect. Uh, but Catherine Hunter plays the witches, and she plays an old man. And again, as the old man, it's great. Again, with that, she has like this almost androgynous voice in this movie. And so, you know, it kind of works both ways. It's really great. Catherine Hunter is the champion here, the winner. When you watch this, that is the reason to watch. Uh, but all that said, I'll get back to the performances here in a minute. I just had to give Catherine Hunter some serious praise. And Catherine Hunter, real quick, is not in it that much. But every time, she steals the show for me. Every time. There's not a moment in the movie where anyone else is better, in my opinion. And there's a lot of good acting here, but we'll get there. So, you know, uh, the, the cinematography and everything, this is in black and white. This is an old Hollywood four by three uh, aspect ratio. So it's just like it's full screen, as we used to call it. Now we all have widescreen TVs. So, uh, you know, it's the bars on the left and right because it's just like a square. And uh, four by three aspect ratio, black and white. They're using, you know, old Shakespeare language. So, you know, it's a lot, it's almost like decoding riddles half the time you're listening, but it's like somehow with Shakespeare, I just like get the story that's happening. Like, even if you don't fully understand every line, it's like so poetic and interesting, but like, you know, what's going on. And I think that's also a testament to Joel Cohen, but, uh, the, the, what I love is, you know, uh, in today's episode, I think it's today's episode. It might be in a couple weeks, but in my conversation with Matthew Sosi, there's a point where he talks about, uh, you know, being a director of a play and whenever you know he directs plays he loves the old idea of like the most minimal sets are best because it forces people to focus on the performers and what we see here and and, and in Shakespeare or or you know performance based like if there was a play version of the movie mass or something I could see that being very bland sets because it doesn't matter it's all about the performances and in this movie it is very much the same. For as striking as the visuals are, the, you know, uh, Denzel Washington plays Macbeth. The Macbeth household is the most bland, 
generic, empty, clinical-looking old building, old fortress, basically. It's a castle. So this castle, is just, there's not a picture anywhere. It's just white walls and people walking around in it. And someone could see this as, it still looks like incredible somehow, but someone could think of this as bland. But dude, there's something about this. It is like, it really does make you focus on the performances. And the performances are really uh, where I'm trying to get, but I'll get there in a second. There are minimal sets in this movie too. You have uh, a set of kind of a dilapidated house that's fallen apart. Uh, there is the battleground with the fog. There's fog everywhere. Uh, there's the fortress, basic, like this castle uh, that the King of Scotland lives in. Um, there are like just a few sets, and each of these sets are kind of amazing, even though in some cases they're kind of minimalist, and there's fog everywhere obscuring most things. But the effects in this, and of course there are special effects used in this, of course, of course, but they're used in such a way that is like really powerful and effective. And so uh, all of this, of course, you know, just really enhances these performances. And that's where Joel Cohen really gets this right. Uh, Joel Cohen and company, all the people involved, they know how to enhance these performances. So I'm going to go down the line a little bit, and then I'll finish up after I talk about these performances, because this movie is just so great. If you're even remotely a fan or of uh, Shakespeare or you're open to it, I love Shakespeare. But if you're open to it, this shit rules, dude. So, um, so Denzel Washington, um, actually, you know what? I'm going to start with Francis McDormand only because it will kind of preface my conversation about Denzel Washington and not conversation, but my, my points on Denzel Washington, my only critique of the film, the only thing that kind of keeps it from being perfect. And I don't mean this as like a super, a big bash. I just mean it as something that was kind of underwhelming to me is Francis McDormand's performance. She is not bad. I don't mean that at all. I love Frances McDormand. But she feels so modern in this movie. Her whole performance, uh, the rhythm of how she speaks, it just never gets to that point where it's fully natural. And of course, she's married to Joel Cohen. I don't know, you know if he kind of like wrote parts for her. I don't know what happened. But she really stands out. There is a part in like the last third of the film she gets real good, okay? But there are reasons for that, okay? Early on, it just kind of seems a little forced. I don't really buy that Shakespearean language coming out of her mouth. It just seems very modern. And Denzel Washington is strangely the same kind of. He still feels kind of unusual. But what I love about that, though, is one, he's really good, but he's also the lead character that we're kind of following and and trying like really getting into their head. So I'm okay with him being a little different because he's like this protagonist, right? And we get to see like kind of a different person that we're following within this world of people who kind of all act on the same level, you know? And that's why Frances McDormand kind of falls short for me because Denzel Washington is kind of the the title role, right? And Frances McDormand is working with all these other people that are working kind of on the same level, and she just doesn't feel like she's on that level. But Denzel Washington, though he doesn't feel like he's working the same way, man, he just still kind of works, especially toward the end. When he starts going a little wacky, you know, dude, he's real good. And again, he feels pretty contemporary, like modern to me. It's not that kind of Shakespearean act that you think of, uh, but it's still, I, I really like that. Now, I've already talked 
you know, way too long about Catherine Hunter, but I cannot stress enough how good Catherine Hunter is, especially as the witches, but as all the old man, the witches, whoever. Uh, but her as the witches, especially at the beginning, there are like two witch moments, I'll just say that, uh, out of all of them that really stand out to me that are just vivid in my head right now. I love Catherine Hunter now. I'm like just such a huge fan. I want her to win a supporting role award, even though I don't give a fuck about the Academy Awards. I just like want her to win all the awards anyways. I really, really was impressed with what she was able to do. Brendan Gleeson fits right in, always great. Corey Hawkins, who played Dr. Dre in Straight Outta Compton. Dr. Dre's great. Holy crap. Did not expect this performance to come out of this guy. He he plays uh, just, man, his he is so good. Uh, this dude, what does he play? Let me, let me find his character here. Uh, yeah, he plays uh, McDuff. So great, this guy. Caught me off guard. Because I, I thought he might have had the same Denzel Washington, Francis McDormand problem where he just feels too modern. No, dude, the dude does an awesome job. And someone else who kind of blew my mind is uh, uh, Harry Melling, who played Dudley in Harry Potter. So bring to bring back around here to Harry Potter. Uh, Harry Melling is so fucking great in this, and he's not in it that much. But I just like really love this guy now, you know, like he I thought he was going to be like this unhinged character because he just looks like he very easily could be, but he's not really. He just kind of pulls this character together the way that he speaks, the cadence in which he speaks, the fluency of that language, man, he fits right in with all of the other champs. And another guy I want to bring up is Milton from Office Space. Okay, <laughs> Let me find his real name because now I feel bad just for uh, calling him that. I, I That's all I wrote in my notes, and now I, I feel bad. Uh, but Stephen Root, that's his name. He plays Porter. He's in one small scene. That dude is incredible at this type of performance. I Dude, this if, if you're not getting picking up what I'm putting down here, the Tragedy of Macbeth has shockingly good performances. And of course it does, right? Like it's the type of movie that's going to really cater to that type of uh that type of uh, awe, right? Like you like this is a movie that is about acting basically. You know, that it is an actor's movie. And uh but but it's the people that were kind of surprising me here. Because you know, you, you might expect Denzel Washington or Francis McDormand or some of these big Brendan Gleeson, th- these people to do it. But it's the Corey Hawkins and the Harry Melling and the Catherine Hunter and the Stephen Root and these people that are really, really great. So uh yeah, all that to say, um, on all cylinders this movie, the only thing is that there are a few characters, like I said, that kind of stand out. Francis McDormand being chief among them, and then Denzel Washington's Macbeth. Um, again, he's awesome, but yeah, it's, he's good. I don't know why I'm talking about him now, but the point is, uh, the tragedy of Macbeth is actually really great. Again, it's on Apple TV plus. If you have that, if not, definitely go rent it, have an open mind, enjoy the visuals, enjoy the sound, enjoy the poetic dialogue that comes from Shakespeare himself. Uh, of course, you know, it was uh, written by Joel Cohen, so there are probably some liberties if you know Macbeth really well, and things have been moved around, of course, and some of the monologues have kind of been spread out so that it's not so monologue-heavy. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of changes. 
But I think Joel Cohen did such a great job, and I can't wait for Ethan to come back, but I'm glad that this exists. I gave this film a four and a half out of five. I am a huge fan. This is also my number four. This has jumped up and knocked out a movie. This is my number four favorite film of 2021. Whenever we did our our list, I didn't have a chance to see this in 2021, but just to update y'all... Uh, this is jumps up way. This even jumps up above my, the Paul Thomas Anderson Licorice Pizza movie, which I'm a he, Paul Thomas Anderson's like my favorite living filmmaker. Okay, and uh, yeah, and this is just so good. You know, uh, I cannot put this over enough. I'm really surprised that this was made in 2022, and it looks like it had enough of a budget to really pull it off. And uh, so I just hope more movies are made like this. I hope more people take risks like this. It's really great. If you've seen The Tragedy of Macbeth and you agree or disagree, please hit me up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search Medium Cool Pod, and we will pop up. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com, and I will be happy to chat with you about this. Let me know if you agree or disagree. Uh, up next, I am going to sit down with Matthew Sosi, and we are going to start the next journey uh, or, or installment, maybe I should say, in our Ingmar Bergman Cinema Marathon. Let's get into it now. All right, everybody. Matthew Sosi is here with me to do part three of our Ingmar Bergman. Closing us out, Matthew. What do you have to say about that? Closing us out. You know, you know, it's funny. The us doing this series is is kind of parallel to me attacking the Ingmar Bergman box set because they're you know we go through stretches where oh this is really good it's really solid and then life happens and work happens they're like oh we should go back to it and then we don't and then we do it again like oh yeah we should go into it. and then the holidays happened and like dude we got to get back on this so yeah no yeah. It, it's been pushed off but the thing is uh, we only had this one. Well, technically, this was originally supposed to be two more episodes, but we've condensed it to one, which is good. I think it's a like since uh, the real kind of anniversary of his first film was last year. This is a good like, let's knock all three out and do it. I'm very happy about it. And yep. we, we, or I think it was we're calling it one final trip to Bummersville. Yeah. At least the Swedish <laughs> version of Bummersville. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, you know how you know how there's like a, a, a Portland in every state. Um, there's a Bummersville <laughs> in every country. So, you know. <laughs> This one's the one in Sweden. Um, oh, big time. And this, honestly, and I'll just give like a little tease to you because you wouldn't know this or the list and the listeners. Um, I'm I'm kind of polarized on all three of these. Really? So so we'll we'll Ooh. talk. I, I'm excited to talk about this. Uh, everybody, we're going to be talking about Cries and Whispers, Scenes from a Marriage, the theatrical version, and Fanny and Alexander, the theatrical version in that order. And we're going to start with Cries and Whispers. This is directed by Ingmar Bergman, written also by Ingmar Bergman as are all three of these. Uh, the cast, Harriet Anderson, uh, Liv Ullman, Ingrid Thulin, and then the caretaker, Carrie Silwyn, which I don't remember ever seeing in a Bergman film. Maybe. I didn't look that up. But, of course, we have our... Harry I, yeah, I don't... I, I don't think so either. I mean, it's it's because uh, normally Bergman has his uh, his entourage of players like Harriet and Leave and, and a few others. But, yeah, you're right about that. Um, yep. I Luck, thought she I was guess, great. That's all I'm saying. She's really, but, really good. Really good. <clears throat> yeah. So this was released, uh, and this is something I found interesting looking at these release dates. It was released December 1st, 1972 in the U.S., but in its home of Sweden, it was March 5th, 1973. 
So my guess is they were trying mm. to get it in before the Oscars. You know what I mean? Oh, <laughs> like, totally. <laughs> like totally. trying to get it Absolutely. in. Yeah. So uh, well, anyway. No and, it, and it paid off. I mean, it paid off for them. This is uh, the, the great Sven Nikvist got a, an award for cinematography. It was up for Best Picture. Uh, Ingmar got a directing nomination, a writing nomination, and costume design. So, you know, the, you, you put those in by the end of the calendar year for a reason. And this was a huge, this was probably the most acclaimed Bergman film since Persona. So yeah, it just it just kind of hit right because the 70, 70s Bergman is really up and down. I mean, it's it's there's there's a couple of films he's done. One in particular has, has been considered to be his worst film, which we're not talking about. But it it was for every counter there was a, a counter counter. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Was that Serpent's Egg? Serpent's Egg, yeah, or okay. as I like to call it, Ingmar Bergman's Cabaret. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's um. What an interesting guy. I, I've loved this. Well, let me finish this, but I'm going to come back to Bergman because he's okay. He's interesting. So this was a, a budget of 450000 I think this is the only one I have budget information for. Uh, and then the box office mm -hmm. was $1.5 in the U.S. alone. So it already doubled or more than it's tripled its uh, budget in the U.S. alone, let alone. Exactly. Yeah, and at this, this was the time when the 70s is my favorite era of film and one of the aspects of that was the fact that um especially foreign directors a, a film being released was an event the new fellini film was an event the new kurosawa film was an event the new bergman film was an event so you already had this kind of built-in audience and i uh, sorry chris lloyd the auteur theory kind of comes in and it's like the the cinematic sheep that would be us uh, would go and see the latest Ingmar Bergman picture when it came to your uh, art house cinema or or university. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And uh, and that's another thing too is <clears throat> back then, uh, especially uh, a foreign picture, but any picture, if it was made for less than a million dollars and made over a million, that's a pretty good deal. You know Huge. what I mean? Like this is before yeah. the, we have to remember this is before uh, you know The Exorcist and Jaws. And like when you start getting into blockbusters where they're making hundreds of or like maybe not hundreds at the time, but tens of yeah. millions of dollars. Um, and for, before and before home video, because this was probably your one and done chance yeah. to uh, to check it out. One hundred percent. Yeah. So <clears throat> a lot has changed uh, in, in time. But Cries and Whispers is one of those that if you look on something like Letterboxd, um, it has a hugely positive on a five on a. Uh, five star scale, its average is four point three. It's like one of those things, right? Like, yeah. Oh no, that's sorry. That's scenes from a marriage. Let me look at here. Um, you, yeah, the four three is the damn Russian judge, as usual. <laughs> um, no, cries and whispers is. Uh, I think it's like this similar to that though. I just want to see before I kind of jump it. Four point one. So either way, it's like still that's like a lot higher than. Um, if you look at a lot of other Bergman or any other films in general, usually they do kind of get a nice little bell curve, maybe closer to the four, but it's in the three as an average. And this is Correct. really breaking that. So uh, it's it's pretty crazy. It's uh, Cries and Whispers is a film uh, that is certainly a key to the bus that leads us to Bummerville. Um, <laughs> as Agnes slowly dies of cancer, her sisters are so deeply immersed in their own psychic pains that they can't offer her the support she needs. Maria is racked with guilt as her uh, at her husband's suicide caused by his discovery of her extramarital affair. 
The self-loathing, suicidal Karen seems to regard her sister with revulsion. Uh, Only Anna, the deeply religious maid who lost her young child, seems able to offer Agnes solace and empathy. Um, There's nothing good about that. (laughs) There's a date movie right there, my friends. That's even better. First date movie. If If your date handles cries and whispers and goes out with you a second time uh you're you're in good yeah 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 and and you can even stay home now because it's on hbo max and criterion channel so depending on if you have either of those streaming channels um you're good to go all three of these movies are actually streaming on both of those um but but my, my kind of pass off to you though talking about cries and whispers specifically matthew is you know you chose these uh, these seven movies that we've covered. Because I, I was like, just pick any ones you want, and then I'll I'll kind of program it, right? Sure. And so my kind of recurring question to you is going to be like, is going to be out of all of the Bergman, why cries and whispers? Well, this is this is one that I think of in my own category cranium of uh, the, the chamber dramas. So. Where, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of scenes in parlors and chamber rooms and, you know, there's those fainting couches and and, you know, as I've said before with Bergman, nobody does inner turmoil like Ingmar Bergman. And, uh, you know, you you got this with four great female performances. I think that's the other part of it is, you know, he Bergman loved working with women, especially these women. He even, you know, would live and have children with some of his actresses, leave and among others. But this was one that really uh, strong performances from the four. And uh, all, so there was, I, I mentioned this, I almost put in Autumn Sonata, which is another chamber drama. That's a, I think a more modern look at it. Um, but I, I, there was something about this. It's, it's gorgeous looking, as I mentioned, mentioned earlier, the great Sven Nikvist uh, got an, got an Oscar for this and well-deserved. Um, but I think people, when it comes to Bergman 101, I think people think of the stereotype of, of playing chess with death or persona and that I'm not going to be able to follow it. You're going to be able to follow it. You're going to be depressed as hell, but you're going to be able to follow it with, uh, with cries and whispers. And as you mentioned, all four ladies, especially not just the one dying, you know, has got a, their, their magazine racks, they're filled with issues. And we get to see those in back and before and and the fact is, it's with Bergman, kind of like Pinter plays. It's what's not said is just as important as what is being said. Oh yeah. Um, and I think we, as Americans, we're used to dialogue-driven. You say how you feel, and that's not necessarily the case. So wait till we wait till we get to scenes from a marriage. But um, but the communication between the sisters and the maid and the, and the you know the doctor, the great Earl and Josephson, and and the woman dying. I mean, it's. You know, if you th- if you think your Thanksgiving sucks, put in put in cries and whispers. You'll be okay. <laughs> I can't imagine. Where's that Bergman movie? Where's the sequel? Uh, Where they're Thanksgiving? <laughs> I think it's half of them. <laughs> Dude, that's so good. Just thinking of a Bergman movie that's Thanksgiving is just sad. Um, no, it, it's. Uh, I, I'll start with one thing that you said because you touched on uh, many things, and I'm gonna. I'll kind of compartmentalize each of these. Sure. Uh, the performances uh, are, are actually really great, and and um, I'm going to probably counter that eventually, but it's not because of the performances. Uh, Harriet Anderson, in my notes, I'm going to read some of these verbatim because I think they're funny because sure, sure. I was doing shorthand. 
So yeah. my my first note, and you'll notice that they kind of get chronological a little bit, like as I'm watching it. It says right. Harriet Anderson looks fucked. <laughs> 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 like like opening scene, she looks messed up, dude. Chapped lips, <laughs> super pale. Like she and and I all of these I went into them. Well, I knew what scenes of a Amer- from a marriage was about. But I actually yeah. didn't really know. I kind of have always intentionally kept the details of what these were about, with the exception of synopses. So I didn't know she was dying. You yeah. Know? Like, oh God. Yeah. So I'm like, man, she looks fucked, dude. <laughs> like, so this this is why we're not allowed on a Bergman set behind standing behind it. Going, dude, that's fucked up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Was well, funny. It, the other thing is, this is 1972. Yeah. So as I was writing in my notes. Um, Harriet Anderson at times looks like a, a very attractive and sick Morna Tierney. But yeah. there there was, this is two years before, or two years after, I should say, Love Story, where, you know, I can't remember, I think it was Roger Ebert who's, who first coined the phrase, you know, Ellie McGraw's disease. You know, you get more beautiful as you get closer to death. And that's not the case here. There's, I no. mean, there's, you know, it's just... She's on her. She's on her. She's not getting up. There's so no. To speak. Yeah. There's uh-huh. no soft focus and light halos around this chick. No. This no, is. Even, um, I mean, Harriet Anderson's a beautiful woman, and 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 you know they they deglamorized her as much as you could. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and that that's you know that's another aspect of it. It's it's kind of no filters whatsoever. But speaking of the lead uh, actors here, I mean, Harriet Anderson looks completely messed up, but that is also juxtaposed with Liv Ullman and Ingrid Thulin, who are dressed to Stunning. the nines. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, I mean, in these really ornate, not only are the sets wildly decorated, but the costume design is really wild and very specific, more mostly specific to Cries and Whispers. Like, I haven't seen another Bergman film where they look this... Um, maybe you, unique's not the word I want, but, like, so, like flamboyant buoyantly dressed you it know was, what i mean yeah i think the other thing for i forgot we forgot to mention this is set in the 19th century yeah so so yeah it's they're not in sweats in the hospital waiting room like you and i would be these days yeah, um, yeah. harriet anderson is in her bedroom and her sisters are in the house in different like rooms just like waiting <laughs> like, like just, yeah basically <laughs> In a, in, oh, by the way, in a capital R red room. So you can, I, you know, I don't know if you want to hear this from two guys, but you could, you could talk a lot about the symbolism of red in the room and ladies and birth and death. And, you know, we won't do that. Not today. You yeah. y'all can do that if you like. So, but then, you know, Bergman's dead, so you can't ask him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and in my notes, I have the color red question mark. And then, <laughs> you know, uh, I have other things which which we don't have to really get into. But but what I do want to say is that um, Bergman much you start to see as his films go on, not that he didn't do this earlier, but I think some of these later movies, you start to see this like Kubrick level intentionality, if you get my, okay, my point. Yeah. So it's yeah. like, you know, with the color red, that is not not on purpose, as well as the contrasting colors at large. It's black, white, and red. Those are the three colors almost entirely through the film. And so, um, yeah, th- there's just so, like... So it's a newspaper. <laughs> yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a lot of intentionality here. And it's also uh, very intentional that no one speaks for nine and a half minutes. 
the opening of the film, you see Harriet Anderson, and you know how I knew she was dying? Because she looks like she's dying, and she's acting like she's dying. And so, like, um, and so, like, you don't hear that for probably 15 minutes into the movie, you know, um, that, like, she's sick, but you know she is. And this is another one of those um, show-don't-tell movies. You know, uh, we're going to talk about a Bergman film that has a lot of show-don't-tell, but also has a lot of tell. Um, tell-tell, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this is not one of them. And I, I, I want to I drop this on you, because uh, full transparency, Cries and Whispers... I was a little, I was back and forth on this one um, because yeah. I appreciate what's happening. It's, it's appreciation versus kind of like entertainment, maybe. Sure. Because like I can be entertained by fucked up shit. Okay, man. We want all the shit yes, we've watched so far. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Like we all the stuff we've watched so far, I've loved. So it's not, it's not that it's a bummer, but it's like. Bergman is so like, you can't watch Cries and Whispers and say Bergman's not incredible. Because everything he's doing in it is like, holy shit, how are you thinking of this? What are you doing? Why is she cutting herself there? Like, you know, like, uh, it's just, there's just like a lot of stuff. And you're just like, dude, this Bergman is like a wild guy. So I really appreciate the the creation of this, right? Almost like all the on paper inside baseball shit. But then watching it, it reminds me, and I told my dad this after I watched it, because I was, uh, he, he and I had talked like the day after I watched Cries and Whispers. And uh, I, I remember a, I used to watch Family Guy all the time. My dad loves that show, but I used to watch Family Guy all the time. And there's a point where it's either Peter Griffin or Brian the dog. Um, they're talking to someone and they go, uh, yeah, it's like um, an old black and white art film. And then it cuts to this like little vignette of someone making fun of art films. And there's like a clown in slow motion flipping a pancake and slowly looking at the camera. Yep. Dude, this is the movie and others like it that they're making fun. Like, I almost laughed at times for how overdramatic this can be. And that was like kind of a bummer to me. And I, and it's, I, I want to pass it to you because I, I, I want your take on this. Because there are times, there's a point where Lee Holman is like staring straight into the camera, hard key light on one side of her face, black darkness on the other. And I get the symbolism there, right? Like there, there's, there is like, it, that's what I'm saying is I appreciate that. Like, that's awesome. But she yep. just stares and there's this overdramatic violin, like <laughs> playing. And I can't help, but like almost chuckle because I'm like, this feels like a parody, but it's like, this is what people are parodying. Like, this is what right. made the thing a thing. Um, or there's a scene where uh, Harriet Anderson's talking to Ingrid Thulin, and it's just that really dramatic music again, but you see them talking real fast to each other, and it's all silent, though. Like, you can't hear what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Again, I love what's happening in, like, the, the narrative, so to speak, but the execution, I just kept, like, wanting to laugh at it, and it's not meant to be laughed at. Like, this is not a laugh movie. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, like... Did you ever feel the like over dramatization as being a bit much or were you kind of just in for it? Like you were like, no, I get this. Let's go. I, I, I was in for it. I get it where you're, you're, you're not going to, you know, when you get home from work on Friday night, you're not going to grab a pizza, a 12 pack and you're not going to flip in cries and whispers. But um, here's one because I'm old enough that I get to do this. Um, like Mean Girls and Heathers. So you mentioned Family Guy. Of course, the critic 
did the same thing with uh, the John Lovitz character, who, and you see his student art film, his student uh, student short <laughs> film, which is just like that with, yeah, hangings and clowns and everything. And yes, my, my buddy Abdul Kim Shabazz always mentions a clown smoking a cigarette while playing chess with death. The other part for me, and this is, I think, this is why cinema is great because you bring your own path yes. and your own history to something. Um, I'm a straight white male who's in his 50s. So I grew up on Woody Allen. Sorry, it just did. And, you know, he's mocking Bergman all the time. Yeah. You know, the first we'll, we'll, one get to, I we'll get to Woody Allen on one of the other ones. because <laughs> Yeah, the first, well, the first one I remember, and I believe it was in Bananas, where he says he has this dream and he's being, and it's on a New York City street and he's being dragged, he's being carried, um, strapped to a crucifix by a bunch of guys and then they find a parking spot and they're about ready to pull in, but another crucifix crew pulls in and takes the parking spot. And then the gentleman put the two crucifixes down and have a fist fight. <laughs> so I, I, just, I, I knew the jokes first because of, because of Alan, because it, you know, films like Stardust Memories, which is like his Fellini yeah. interiors, which is his Bergman. And even as in his early comedies of the seventies, they would, there would be moments. Um, the final shot of the two ladies in uh, Love and Death is totally pulled for Persona. Oh, yeah. So I knew going in that this was something. I, you know, I, and then um, I started watching Bergman films a little bit more when I was in high school and college, which I'm, you know, you do it and you're not always going to get it. You know, that's the other great thing about cinema is that the films don't change. We do. But but now we are of an age and we've been here long enough that, yeah, you you can see the parodies. And you can't, maybe at times you can't help think of the parodies, but yeah, for 1972, this, this was a big deal. Yeah. We were still, yeah. you know, there, nobody, there was no SNL, there was no sketch comedy. Nobody, they weren't, you know, there was, but they, you know, variety shows, but they weren't doing, you know, Carol Burnett was not doing, uh, you know, scenes from a marriage parodies in 1973. <laughs> That'd be so weird. <laughs> right. So yeah. it's just, it's just one of those things. So no, it's, and, uh, I've always said there's two types of audience members. There are sitters and there are thinkers. Thinkers can sit and sitters can think, but I think you're rooted one way or another. So I think if you're a thinker, you can, like you mentioned, you can recognize a parody and still get, still get involved in the story as opposed to having it pull you out. Yeah. So I I don't know if that helps, but it's kind of, but yeah, there's, there's, there is that dynamic. And I, I remember saying to my daughter, early on because one of you know one of the things that bugs the hell out of her in films because she's 20 she was born in 2001 she hates the green screen in a car driving scene in the 50s 60s and so you know that fake you know, <laughs> no, real, oh, rear pulled, projection dude that's yeah, the real so projection. awesome rear projection, you know and it pulls her out of it and i said i know and then i had to show her airplane which made fun of you know rear projections that's just how it was so yeah dude i love rear dude when i want just a quick caveat <laughs> Um. Uh. Whenever we should have Emma on, just so we can argue about this. <laughs> oh God! You have you can't. We don't have you don't have enough money to have her as a guest. No, but, yeah. I'm kidding. Um. But like, there's. It's like watching um. Uh, Clockwork Orange or uh, Natural Born Killers, which both use rear projection, but in like yes. exaggerated in different ways, but at the same time, like for an effect. Um. And that's actually what's funny is grow when I first started watching movies, like you mentioned, like when you start, you don't always quite get stuff. But like that's what made me appreciate rear projection is <laughs> seeing people use it in exaggerated ways and me going, oh, 
wait, I get that. Like, I get this now. I don't know why, yeah. but those I, those two movies come to mind. Anyways, uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Cries and Whispers. I mean, you you definitely hit it here. Uh, the I, I like the thinker thing as well. Thinking of it that way, because again, I, I get on paper, I get all the things. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I'm sure. I, well. I get all the things that I think I'm supposed to get. <laughs> we'll all probably get something different out of it. Um, but you know, there's uh, there are some real truths that hit me. For example, like when Agnes, played by Harriet Anderson, is uh, she's dying and uh, she starts breathing really weird. Like there's a point where the caretaker go and and I want to say this this is not the only weird thing this actually works for me I'll explain why there are uh -huh. other moments where like there's a point where Ingrid Thulin is staring in the camera all right and she sits there for like ten seconds and then I'm gonna try to do this she just goes oh and it's like this really like. That makes me laugh thinking of what I just did, but it's like when you think about on paper what's happening, it's like th yeah. she's stricken with this grief and this guilt, and she has all of her personal shit. Like, that is her mourning manifesting, right? But the yeah. execution of that made me laugh. Do you understand what sure. I'm saying? And yeah. it made me yeah, so sad because it's like I don't want to laugh at you because this is really a bummer. But like yeah, I left, I'll get back to well, Agnes in a second. But go ahead and comment. No, you're right. I mean, it's well, I and I think everybody has their own vision of not just cinema grieving, but but you know uh, their own grieving. And we're not glamorous, gang. We're not we're not doing ha ah, and then fainting and crying. Yeah. You know, it's it, let's put it this way: when it comes to cinematic crying, friends, I hate to admit this, Laura Dern got it right. She got it right. It's it's not a good look. It's not a great sound. It's you know, and I, I don't I don't know if Bergman went up to her and just said, "Are you going to make this noise again?" You were you were <laughs> no. well, and you remind me of you reminded me of Christopher Lee on the set of Lord of the Rings, where you know somebody walks, you know they're directing a scene where he's a, a person, one of the, the warriors comes up from behind and slits the throat, and the guy dies, and Christopher Lee, of course, says that that's not the noise they make. <laughs> that's not that's not the sound that somebody makes when they're when they get their throat slit <laughs> like huh so no there's yeah it's it's or um the end of godfather 3 where it was kind of cool that you hear al pacino grieving in silence and then and then about halfway through they they put the sound in and uh yeah it, gr grieving is not glamorous friends and uh don't let hollywood fool you we yeah you know yeah. viola davis with the snot bubble and every if you think of all the just uncomfortable looking sounding moments in film when it comes to grieving that's accurate yeah honestly it's uh i mean yeah we're kind of talking about grief scripts here right like what we expect and what but the process of going, going into a studio or having the camera on and go do it. And thank God he's not Kubrick because he would have made her do it 130 times. That's yeah. exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The difference between uh, the sisters, because Lee Volman does that later as well. They both have almost identical moments of mourning at different points yeah. in the story. But uh, Harriet Anderson, <clears throat> uh, she starts breathing really weird. And this didn't make me laugh, but I mean, like, it, it is, it's a different weird, right? And she starts, because yeah. it, it's fucked up because you know she's dying. I mean, this is like a very different mood, right? This isn't mm -hmm. just staring into a camera and then screaming. This is like, you knew this was coming. 
And the thing is, stuff like this happens, like you were just saying, it's not glamorous. Stuff like this happens when people are dying. My mom, <clears throat> I got to spend the last three weeks with my mom when she died in 2018. It was in a hospital, and they said that she was not going to get out. So I yep. told my boss here in Lafayette, hey, I'm whatever the consequences are, I'll accept it, but I have to leave and I, indefinitely. Like, I don't know when I'm coming back, but once mom dies, I'll be back. They were kind enough to let me go. Uh, you know, for and I had a job when I came back kind of a thing. So I was able to go there and uh, with the support of all of my family and friends, um, I had places to stay. I had dinner. I had, you know what I mean? Like everyone was kind of helping take care. And I'm sitting in there with my mom and you'd be surprised at the weird shit that happens when you're in a room from like 10 a.m. or 9 a.m. to until like midnight or whatever with someone who's dying. The weird mm -hmm. shit that happens. Um, there was a point where my grandma was in there <clears throat> and my mom just stopped breathing when she was asleep. And my grandma started freaking out. We didn't know my mom uh, had sleep apnea. <laughs> and oh, the nurse is like, gosh. oh, yeah, yeah, obviously she does. Like, definitely she does. <laughs> like, none of us knew this, you know. And um, But, like, she would do these, like, weird things. She would make these weird noises. She would, do, you know. All this weird, not glamorous stuff, like you said. So the Agnes breathing weird thing was like super realistic to me. <laughs> like it feels not realistic, almost like it feels like someone's acting. But like me having the experience, like you said, we grow, we evolve with our film based on our lived experiences. And it's true for me, like watching her die from cancer, like my mom died from cancer. Um, I had this like maybe look behind the curtain to feel these moments. And though they were very different, I didn't project my mom's death on this. Like I didn't have that experience, right. um, but I could at least pull little things and go, no, I buy this. Like it's easier for me to buy into Agnes breathing exaggeratedly, which actually isn't really all that, but it feels exaggerated yeah. versus, you know, uh, Karen and Maria like screaming at the camera. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that was uh I thought I thought Harriet Anderson was awesome in this movie. That's hard, man. It really is. I said my my mother was the same my mom was the same way. She died of cancer when I was uh finishing up my junior year of college. And yeah, to be in there in a long time, it's as an actor or a director, you know, you hope you don't have to witness this. I think you, you would think of actors going into a hospital with a notebook and going, can I, can I watch? And, or, <laughs> yeah. you know, and well, and that's that you would think that for research purposes, as opposed to life experiences, as far as, you know, watching somebody you love going. Um, but that's kind of, I, I got a feeling this was, I got a feeling Harriet Anderson and Ingmar Bergman were not walking into hospitals with notepads going, Hey, can we hang out? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and so, yeah, there, there's totally that aspect of it. And it's hard to recreate the hospital experience. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not pleasant. And, uh, and, you know, it's, or, you know, like ER, you know, somebody dies in 52 minutes or something like that. But, you know, but that's another aspect of, and, and Bergman liked to mix his cinema and reality as much as anybody, I think. Um, yeah. You know, again, this these are this is not Hollywood. This is not Hollywood illness. This is not Hollywood grieving. No, I mean, you know, watching all the movies I've seen of Bergman now, all the ones that you've, of course, completed with the box set and all that. It's um, it's interesting to kind of see he has more than two, but there's like two sides to Bird Bergman. 
there's your cries and whispers and your personas, right? Like those kind of almost like hyper stylized, like uh, almost surreal, though they are dealing with real things, right? Yep. And then yep. you have something like the next movie we're going to talk about, which is way more based in reality and way more um, maybe gritty uh, or, or however you like. There's something like a, there's a basis in reality. It doesn't feel as hyper uh, hyper realistic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Cries and Whispers certainly falls into that uh, that persona side, I would say, personally. Do you want to comment? There's, I, w- I want to mention because before we, we take off, there's there's a moment you mentioned it, you alluded to a little bit in Cries and Whispers, and I want to I want to acknowledge <laughs> please the ho- the horror influence of Ingmar Bergman. Um, I, I think I mentioned this on previous episodes, but if you're a fan of horror films, you should really check out Bergman films. Uh, the great example, of course, is The Virgin Spring. Yeah. If you're a fan of yeah. Last House on the Left, the original Wes Craven, Last House on the Left. It, it's it's basically the virgin spring on a much cheaper budget shot in the u.s yeah um yeah. and there, there's some other films that he's done like shame and hour of the wolf which are you know have horror like aspects of it um the scene with the wine glass yeah yeah there yeah. is there's a moment where it involves a lady and a wine glass and trying to get a rise out of her husband. And it's, it's really one of the most uncomfortable things I've seen in a movie. And if you're into, if you're into that kind of stuff for your horror films, yeah, come, come on down to cries and whispers land and, uh, and watch that moment at dinner. So yeah, this, this really involves, horrifying. yeah, this, in, this basically involves a lot of blood and uh, cutting with glass. I don't know, dude, that that because that scene stood out so much to me, it was one of those moments where I had that strange polarizing moment again, where I'm like, "Oh shit, she is fucked right now." Like she's like, like she's so messed up over this. And on paper, I'm like doing that thing where I get it, and I'm like, "Oh my gosh, this is wild." But the extreme, the extremity of what is happening, almost like pulls me out of it. Where I'm like, "Oh my I- god, what are you doing, Bergman?" Like it was. It was so like it is shocking. I didn't expect it and at all. I think also the also I think if you're a fan of Italian cinema, if you're uh, Argento type stuff, the red fades in this. There are so many yeah. red fade outs that I I gotta think the the Italian horror directors in the seventies were like, yeah, I'm gonna I want to do that. I want to add that. If you're a fan of Gallo stuff. Yeah, he he. Uh, of course, like we already touched on, and I encourage you to watch this and and um, dig into the symbolism of red because red is all over this movie uh, in many different shades and many different ways. Uh, <laughs> what? The, oh, the other the other part, friends, is and I, this is just a fun nugget. Um, you know who distributed Cries and Whispers in the U.S.? Who? Roger Corman. <laughs> The same year Roger, yeah, I'm I'm on IMDb. I knew this, but I'm going the same year Roger Corman put out Martin Scorsese's Boxcar Bertha, The Dirt Gang, and Night Call Nurses. He put out New World Films, put out Cries and Whispers. So, and I got to meet, I'm going to pick up this name I dropped. Um, I got to meet Roger Corman at IU a few years back and got to thank him because he was an influence for me early on as a play director because I, I begged, borrowed, and stole. And uh, and I said, I, I'd like to thank myself as a Roger Bergman of play directors and play directing, but I also thanked him for distributing 
all the or the foreign films that he did in the early seventies. Look at look it up, friends. It's quite impressive. No, there's what he brought to the U.S. There's a there's more than one, but there's one doc that came out on Roger Corman within the last 10, 15 years that really mm-hmm. does what you're talking about. Like it starts at the beginning and it works through. I forget what it's called, but it works Corman's through Corman's World, baby. I, I I don't even know if I remember. There, if there, there, there are a yeah. couple of them. I know. And I, but, I, I don't want to get them mixed up. Yeah. They have a ton of talking heads of the people that he helped. So like Scorsese's and, and uh, Coppola's and all these people that he was kind of helping uh, kickstart. I mean, his career is legendary. Even if you don't like a lot of his movies, a lot of what has changed cinema wouldn't exist without this dude. You know, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure, and I could I could have this wrong. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I want to say whenever when uh, Dennis Hopper uh, and uh, Fonda wanted to make uh, Easy Rider, I'm pretty sure they did. They go to Corman. I want to say they, they went, went to, Cor- to Corman, and he's like, they, they "Here's two hundred fifty grand, and here's a camera <laughs> or whatever." You know, and he's just like, "Get well, my they, money they, back." They went. They went to Corman first, and uh, he did. They he turned him down. You turn it down. So that's it's it's funny you mentioned that because one of the box sets I just finished was the uh the criterion box set of the BBS story. Yeah. Which had uh easy, that's and that's where Birch uh Bob Rafelson, Bert Schneider, and sorry, the other guy. Um they put <laughs> I'm I'm terrible, but they had put out Easy Rider, they put Rafelson put out the monkeys film Head, which Nichols Jack Nicholson co-wrote. Uh, five easy pieces. Drive, he said. The last picture show. A, simple, a safe place, and King of Marvin Gardens. Yep. So uh, Criterion has a really, really cool box set. But yeah, it wound up it wound up going there because they thought. I think um, they. I can't remember Corman's reaction. I know, except I know he turned it down, but I think he had already said, I've already done biker films. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, what it was. You're what, right. What Fonda and Hopper were, we're going to do more of a, more of a Western with motorcycles. Yeah. And uh, yeah. anyway, the rest is, that's another branch of cinema history you can look into. Yeah. You should certainly look into, uh, to Corman though. He's, um, he's just something else. That guy, I mean, just super fascinating. Read a book yeah. about him. Docs. Like, I mean, He's just one of those yep. dudes that you can't pinpoint. He's just everywhere. Um, but yeah, so uh, f- for the sake of time, Cries and Whispers, it's on HBO Max and the Criterion channel if you have either of those. Uh, certainly go check it out. I didn't dislike it. It just, there were moments where Bergman just went so far for me that I just, co- I was almost taken out and couldn't take it seriously. Um, but the thing is, even despite that, I was able to get what I think he meant by these things on paper. And those things were really impressive to me. Uh, so uh, un- unfortunately, this is, uh, granted, I've loved the other four movies that you and I have talked about, uh, Matthew, but uh, this is my least favorite so far. Ah, well, there has to be if you're going to There has to be. The, there know, has to be. We're, we're, we're such a list-oriented society these days, and we have to write yeah. things. So I'm not going to make you, yeah, I'm not going to make you uh, do any kind of list for Bergman because I'm going to do <laughs> that you. on a future episode now that we've done this. Because I want to, I want to rewatch the Seventh Seal Persona, Hour of the Wolf, uh, Autumn Sonata, Sonata, and then I want to watch Winter Light in the Silence to finish out the kind of spiritual trilogy of oh that. My so God. if I can do those six within the next two weeks. I'm going to do a list of my 
Matthew's Oh God! Not all those got it once. What are you? All right, no, wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Sorry, friends. Here's uh, here comes Doctor Sosi, film therapist. Let me let me put on my 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 corduroy jacket with the elbow pads. Yeah. Okay, you you can do that, but you got to cleanse your palate in between with something else. So well, I don't know, Bob's Burgers, Archer, something. You got to don't do that in a row, man. Well, my my, show. my wife and I are in the middle of a Doctor Who marathon. Uh, because I had uh-huh. never seen it, so that w- that might be like the cleanser because it's it's pretty it's pretty uh, it's not that heavy. All you know right, what I'm saying that's that's pretty good. Yeah, and if uh, and if anybody would like to be my companion, let me know because I could <laughs> I could always my my wife's laughing her ass off. I always say I I, I want a Doctor Who companion, but knowing my luck, I'd get a minion and drag. <laughs> So if you guys if you guys want to check out uh, Cries and Whispers, we can always uh, kind of harken back to this movie as we move forward. Um, yep. But Cries and Whispers is uh, yeah, it's just one of those uh, kind of heavy Bergman movies. And, uh, and so the only, what's your the, last only point? Best, the only best picture nominated film for Bergman, dude. Yeah, because he won he won foreign language film things, but best picture is a different best picture. Yeah, and, and for 1972, this was a big, you know, Z had gotten the best picture nod two years prior. This, I mean, and, and we, you could do a whole film, you could do a whole series on the foreign best picture winner uh, nominees yeah. that aren't England, but uh, yeah, but I mean, this was wasn't didn't this what this was the same year as The Godfather when that yeah, was that's up. kind of yeah, that's kind of hard. That's the, yeah, that's a tough that's a tough school right there. That's yeah. a tough thought. Look up look up uh, Ac- Google Academy Awards 1973. Because the 1973 one will look back at 72, and uh, right. l- look that one up because I don't know the exact fucking number because they're like there's like a hundred of these things now. So, um, <laughs> but yeah, actually, I guess we're at 90 something because it started in 27. But the point is, uh, go look at 1972. What a year! And yep. 1974, which we're about to talk about. What a fucking year! Um, we will talk about that and more here in just a moment. Uh, we'll be right back. Let's go ahead and hop into this. Uh, Scenes from a Marriage, 1974, written and directed by Ingmar Bergman, of course. Uh, The cast is Liv Ullman and Erlen Josephson pretty much the whole time. Uh, Of course, B.B. Anderson, another kind of constant player, is in the film, um, not for a lot. Um, this was, of course, no, but when you got, when you got BB Anderson coming off the bench, that's, yeah. that's, that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and this was a first, a TV mini series that Bergman then cut down to a three hour film. It's a six hour mini series, but they cut it in half pretty much. Yep. And, uh, it is, uh, it was released again, just like the last one, September 15th, 1974 in the U S but it was October 28th, the same year in Sweden in its hometown or home country. Rather. Uh, this is also streaming on HBO max and the criterion channel. If you're interested and, uh, it follows Johan and Marianne who are married and seem to have it all. Their happiness, however, is a facade for a troubled relationship, which becomes even rockier when Johan admits that he's having an affair. Before long, the spouses separate and uh, move toward finalizing their divorce, but they make attempts to, uh, at reconciliation. Even as they pursue their relationships, Johan and Marianne uh, realize that they have a significant bond but also many issues that hinder their connection. Um, 
there are a couple of things I want to lead into this with, and then I'm going to pass it off to you, okay? Because my, sure. my general question is always going to be like, why'd you pick this? But I don't want to go there yet. Okay. This is Kramer versus Kramer slash Blue Valentine slash Marriage Story done by Bergman, okay? Um, this is, uh, this is Again, the great first date pitch right there. Yep. Yep. So after on your first date, after you've watched cries and whispers, if they have a second, <laughs> this is your second date. And then if that works, you know, you have a keeper. Um, wow. but the other thing, and this is what I want to lead off with here. Um, cause I, I loved marriage story. And so going into this sure. and, and seeing that it's kind of a similar, I mean, there's a whole lot more to this than, oh, yeah. um, than the other, but uh, but one thing I noticed all the time, this is in four by three aspect ratio. It's like a TV ratio. Uh, yeah. It looks really gritty like TV too, which I actually loved all of this for this specific content because it's so raw because this is yeah. three hours of talking and it's literally <laughs> scenes from a marriage. Like there are disjointed scenes. There's time jumps. Again, the TV mm -hmm. series probably has a bit more fluidity, but it I actually does. love how this was cut because it wasn't hard for me to follow at all. Like no. you can tell when eight months has passed, even just in the dialogue or, you know what I mean? Like they, they yep. jump around, they fall apart, they get back together. you know, there's all of this back and forth. But one thing that I noticed I could not get away from even within the first half an hour is Woody Allen. You already brought him up. Always talks about Ingmar Bergman being a huge influence on him. You already brought up a few scenes in his movies where you can see he's kind of parodying with love Bergman. Uh, he's been widely known for talking about Seven Seal being his favorite film. He has yeah. all of this stuff. And yet I watch scenes from a marriage and I'm like, this is Woody Allen if Bergman got a hold of it and took out the jokes. You know, what I'm well, <laughs> like, and, that, and that was that was interiors. Yeah, that was in t that, that was Woody's follow up to um, Annie Hall, which won Best Picture in 1977. And I remember because I was I was eight when Interiors came out, and I got the warning from Dad. He's like, Dad, I said, Dad, oh, Woody Allen's got a new movie. And he's like, Son, this isn't funny. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Interiors is not that at all. So, but no, yeah, this is yeah, this would be that's a good description of it, uh, along with your second date movie <laughs> yeah no i mean but it's this movie is conversational in a way that reminded me of woody allen the opening scene and again i'm gonna pass this off to you still but this is yeah. all lead-in kind of the opening scene is the family they're this archetypal perfect family being interviewed by a magazine yes. and there's this like back and forth all the time and i just kept thinking i could see diane keaton and woody allen and these two people insert jokes and this is a Woody Allen move the way it looks I mean this doesn't yep. look that different than Annie Hall in terms of color palettes and uh like the close shots and uh dude just it's very intimate uh, what Annie Hall is probably not a great the the best example but um Woody Allen has a lot of movies where they will be about those relationships and it will kind of uh he does a lot of like closer shots either a tight two shot or he'll do these kind of closer shots of each person talking um, and this, this, uh, Bergman does that, but he also does like, he follows people so well in this. I mean, just everything about scenes from a marriage, I just threw out the three hours that this was two forty nine, whatever it is. I just kept thinking th Woody Allen could have remade this in the eighties and this well, would have been just this, like the same movie with jokes. 
Yeah, and well, I think well to kind of piggyback on what you're saying. Um, no, I think I think Annie Hall does have the ebbs and flows. It's just ninety minutes. You know, he would he would do a setup like him talking, Alvy Singer talking to to Annie, going, "You should go to college. It's great. It's good for you." And then they cut to another scene down the street, and he's like, "College is such junk. They're phonies." And that's kind of our relationships with with people. Sometimes we can we can we self contradict all the time yeah we say one thing in the fall and then we'll say something different in the spring whatever suits Um, us best yeah yeah and so i as i was writing in my notes yeah i was like yeah first thing interview he's rehearsed she's not and right as soon as that happens of course um especially if you're watching the tv version you're like oh god it reminded me of if you remember about what i call act two of uh boogie nights where Mark Wahlberg and Burt Reynolds are being interviewed for the uh, Julianne Moore's character documentary. And, and Wahlberg, yeah, I planned all my stunts and everything like this. And Burt just sits there. He goes, uh, no, he didn't. And just like, oh, this is not going to end well. Or as my daughter said the first time she saw Hamlet, this isn't going to end good. Yeah. <laughs> so right out of the gate, we're like, okay, we're, we're, we're already putting, well, he's putting on a facade and she isn't. And then of course, what is kind of episode one of the series and I'll, I'll try to stick with the theatrical version is that you have this, this other couple over for dinner and they have a fight. So there's that kind of self-confidence of we're doing okay. Look at these two having a, having a row at our dinner. Yeah. Yeah. It's, oh man. Like this is one where I'd be like super down with watching the TV series. And, Dude, and, you should. I love, well, and, and, and we, we will talk about the other one, which was the same thing. Um, I saw I saw scenes from a marriage in college and was just blown away by the two by Erlen Josephson and Lee Volman. Um, you know, just the the amount of blood, sweat, and tears and other horn-based rock bands these two put into this performance. And then I had only seen the theatrical version. So when I bought the Criterion box set, I was really excited because I was going to see the full mini series of this film as well as Fanny and Alexander, which we'll get to in a little bit. And um, for five hours, and by the way, if you're binge watch on TV, you're not allowed to bitch about a movie's length anymore. Sit down and watch <laughs> the Irishman and shut up. Yeah. But, um, but I was really wrapped up in these two for all damn near six, six hours of this. So to watch the revisit the film version, if you are, are a, if anybody listening has ever participated in track and field, and I did a thousand years ago, I used to love whenever possible to run or try to run in a pool or run on sand. Because once you hit the heart, because it's, it's, it, it works, it feels like you're not getting anywhere. As soon as you get on the solid flat land, you feel like a flipping gazelle. Um, I, I guess another, another comparison is uh, I've, done, I've done a couple of plays in the last couple of years where we've had to rehearse with mask on. Once you take the mask off for the performance, you feel like your voice could move storms because of that. So anyway, to go from the, the televised version to the theatrical version, to revisit the theatrical version, it's it's just as riveting. So I guess I guess I will say if you like scenes from a marriage or love scenes from a marriage, please seek out the the television version wherever you can. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's one I'm looking forward to because I can see all the seams in the movie, not in a bad way, but I can see where oh that would definitely be filled in. Oh, this would this would have more, and. Um, well, and- 
you mentioned you mentioned Kramer versus Kramer. This is another one for the history books. This is 1974. Movies were not were not covering the subject of divorce. I mean, and and divorce became huge, obviously, in the 1970s. Kramer versus Kramer is the one that kind of opened the floodgates in uh, in the U.S. Um, you, soon after, you'd have a film like Shoot the Moon, Alan Parker's uh, date film with Diane Keaton and Albert Finney. But uh, but yeah, this this was a big deal that was being done on television because nobody was talking about it. We had sitcoms where they, you know, you would rather have a dead parent, a dead spouse and a divorced spouse and a TV sitcom. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This was, this was, um, dude, this gets, this is a bummer. Like, <laughs> like I was, I was texting my buddy, uh, my buddy Isaac, because he, he, this is the, this is the, uh, their neighborhood. They were doing very well successfully. <laughs> yeah. 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 They are, they are, well, that's another thing with the Woody Allen thing is like, you have two like people who are like high society people you know, one's like a professor, one's like a, a divorce, like what, what is she, a divorce therapist or like, Something like that? Yeah. 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 And so, um, yeah, you have like these two people doing very Woody Allen character jobs. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just, yes. it fits. But yeah. so I was talking to my buddy, uh, Isaac, who's a huge, both Woody Allen fan and Ingmar Bergman, the movies that is. Um, and, uh, I was like, dude, have you seen scenes from a marriage? And I was like, not quite an hour in. But I like text him as I'm watching, like, dude, you have like, have you seen this? He's like, no. I'm like, you have to see this. He's like, dude, it looks so depressing. I'm like, no, it's actually not that bad yet. Next fucking scene. (laughs) Next fucking scene is as I put in the synopsis. It's whenever Johan admits to having an affair. And then it all just goes fucking downhill. And I text him back like 20 minutes after I had texted him the first time. And I'm like. Yo, this is such a bummer. Like, heads up, dude. This is so sad. Yeah, I, I was, I was writing in my, in my notes as well. I'm like, and this is, this is just a good tip for everybody. Hypothetical questions aren't good. Don't, don't do that. So, and that, of course, leads to, and I, I have to be, I, I'm selfish. I have to say this: if you're cheating on Lee Volman, you're a fucking idiot. So, <laughs> Yeah, sorry. So, so, just... Something's probably going to come for you in that movie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's um, ha- having been uh, in breakups and having gone through a traumatic divorce as well. Um, like experiencing this movie, and I-, I remember watching this with my buddy Riley, who does not have like the relationship history I have, who does not have many experiences to go off of. He'll watch a movie. Either a romance, a movie that has some kind of romance in it, or something, and uh, you know, it's the thing where someone's the the guy. We'll just go to stereotypes. The guy's terrible sure. to the woman, yeah. Um, in traditional standards, and uh, the woman uh, continuously goes back to the man after he apologizes, and and my buddy Riley will just be like, "Dude, what the fuck? Like, why would you do this? This is so unrealistic." And I'm like. No, this is very realistic. Like the reality is the annoying part of it because you're like, yeah. why would you do this? But this happens. And so like when we watch it, I could see him watching this. I think he would love scenes from a marriage because uh, he hasn't seen it either. But like I-, I could see him really liking it. But there are times in this movie where I feel like he I could just see him going like, don't why would anyone do this? No one would do this. Dude, this movie, though it's very Bergman, though it gets kind of stylized, though there are conversations where I do think in reality one might 
maybe get more excitable or the the admission of the affair. That is a very calm, a very chill moment. That is not a fight. That is him telling her, her asking questions, and it's calm. And dude, I had that moment in my divorce where Ah, I find out about a thing that happened. And I start asking questions, and I eventually just say, I need you to answer all of my questions, no matter how painful you think they will be, because this will torture me. And I start asking yeah. very blunt questions, just like Lee Volman. So yeah. I'm like watching this. I'm like, dude, this is awesome. Because movies don't usually do this type of tackling of, no. the, of the breakup, right? It's usually much bigger, or it's a, you know, whatever. Like, you know, someone throws we, a fit. This is very much two mature people having a conversation, for better or for worse. Yep. They're having a conversation talking about hard things. We all, we all want to think if we get into a breakup or a divorce that, you know, the papers will be signed, hands will be shook, and then you go, you know, like, like what, what the couple in marriage story try to do which they've always said they're going to, oh, we're not going to have lawyers involved. It's going to be fire. And of course, lawyers get involved and it gets really ugly really fast because it's shorter than Ingmar Bergman. But 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 the same thing here is you think you're going to put on your best face. And, and one of the things that happens in this film is there are, you know, I hate you. I, you know, next week they're seeing each other or months later they're seeing each other. There's backs and forth. And of course, now more than ever, you can text your ex and go, what are you doing? Hey, how's it going? Or the you know phone calls before, I guess, uh, you had the internet. But even now more so, you could reconnect with somebody from your past if you want to. And it's not always a clean break. And yeah, as we find out, boy, we're just getting started with this film. Even the theatrical version, we are just getting started. There's Anya, my cat, coming in <laughs> wondering... What Swedish human movies are you talking about to the computer screen? Um, sorry, gang. No, but yeah, we, we all wish, we all think we could handle it in a mature kind of chamber drama way. But we're, you know, we're probably more the screaming and throwing shit in the, in the across the room than, uh, than an August Strindberg play, which is another influence of Bergman. That is something that I not only love about this movie, but about Marriage Story or anything else. My... Uh, you know, my daughter's mother, whom I went through the divorce with, we are very civil. We're friends now. It's very much the beginning of marriage story. Luckily, we haven't had to go to the end of marriage story. Um, uh, but like, it's been very much that we just work stuff out together. It's very civil. Good. We're friends. Um, quite, I mean, it, it's strange because she's still like a part of my family's life. So it's like we're all just friends and it's fine now. Of course, it wasn't at a certain point, but it, like that's what I loved about Marriage Story. This movie does something similar because they also talk about the mothers. Their mothers became such close friends. So, what do we? Who gets to tell the mom? Who? And they're it's, going it's through all. It's not these- just you two. It's not just the two of you. There's there's an entire web that is affected by this, whether they're kids or not. Yep. And, and you know, fr- even, even if you're doing the the dividing the dividing of friends. Ah, that's know, what I was about to say. Yeah. I get to hang out. You, I get to hang out with so and so, and you get to hang out with so and so. I mean, there 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 might even yeah, you might even do visitation rights with your friends. <laughs> no, it's it is really weird. Um and in this we 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 see a little bit of the the trading of friends where some of them may have been a little more in the know than uh than And aren't they the thought. best? Especially if they bring it up to your ass. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's uh so so scenes from a marriage is the polar 
opposite to me in terms of of crimes and whisper or cries crimes and whisper i keep mixing up crimes and misdemeanors and cries and whispers oh god um, that's don't watch that as a double feature either <laughs> they're so good but anyways um it's the it's like the opposite of cries and whispers because cries and whispers is so cerebral and it is so quiet and it is so stylized like so stylized yeah. this is raw this is gritty film. Like it looks like a, a, a TV show four by three, like generic textures and colors. Like it's like the wall that they, their beds pushed against is just white. Like it's just yep. a white wall. Like it is stripped down raw. I don't know if there is a more raw Ingmar Bergman movie. Like this is, I, this is probably why it's my, if, if I had to rank it, this is probably my favorite because, and, and, and the big, the mention, the, the stuff we've mentioned, but the, the, the cinematic tennis match between Lee Volman and Erlen Josephson. I, I always talk about sometimes that, uh, that acting pairs like this. I, I often use the, the term is like the equivalent of a heavyweight boxing match. And my, my dream card is your, your, your championship bout is probably, Spencer Tracy and Frederick March and Inherit the Wind. And your undercard would have Philip Seymour Hoffman and Meryl Streep in Doubt, Leave Ullman and Erlen Josephson in Scenes from a Marriage, and for shits and giggles, Ricardo Montalban and William Shatner in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> but, but watching these two, because there are times where it, it is like a tennis match, and then there are times they drop the they drop the tennis rackets pump their fists like Henry Cavill and Mission Impossible and just, you know, MMA each other senseless yeah. in moments. Dude, yeah, and it gets... Br so I just want to... I, I feel like I've kind of been a bit disjointed in talking about this, just to no, give no. people a clear idea. It's here. like a breakup. Well, it is, and, and scene, Scenes from a Marriage really tackles these ideas. It was a really early exploration to this level, especially to this level because of the many... I mean, six hours dedicated to the divorce, yeah. basically. Um. But this is uh, this is not pretty. It starts no. off kind of happy, uh, like you see this couple. You get the, you get the kind of uh, inciting incident of the uh, admission of the affair, and then it gets ugly. And one scene, you'll be on Lee Volman's side, and you're like, yes, like she's doing this right, you know. Yep. Uh, and then another scene, you might be on like Erlen Josephson's side, and you might be like, oh, Lee Volman's like. I don't trust this. Like, don't let, don't let the worst part of you get the better of you. But then they'll be talking and they'll be like, I love you. And they'll have like sex after their divorce. Yeah. And then the very next scene, Earl and Josephson's like, this is why I hate you. <laughs> they just like <laughs> start fighting it's like immediately after they have sex. I mean, it's just, it's just a, a wild long movie, but I didn't really feel I don't feel the three hours as much. No. I mean, it's 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 all dialogue. Is is there an ounce of music in this? I don't think so. I don't think Not, there's a single drop. And, and I think that's the other you mentioned earlier. We I think we are we're used to the uh, the Ingmar Bergman bummer orchestra you know, of a of a chamber a ch string chamber group. You, you mentioned cries and whispers. I you know if you if you want to make fun of those art films, you'd have the camera pull pan over and there's a string quartet playing yeah. in all white well, while this yeah. is going on while <laughs> while the kid is while the woman's yeah. dying yeah we all no, there's, we, there's, we almost get that in fanny and alexander but go ahead <laughs> the kind yeah no you're right you're right they're, they're yeah they're 
<laughs> there is that of, yeah, no music. So I think the stuff that we make fun of Bergman for, except for the raw emotion, is taken out. I mean, it looks it looks great because it is stripped out. It was like, you know, you know, an art director would probably claw their eyes out because there's no art. There's nothing on the walls in the bedroom. And it's just because all of your focus goes on them. Yep. And I, I mean, that's why I, as a, as a play director, I love not having a set or as minimal a set as possible because you have to pay attention to the characters on stage. Yeah. And, uh, and this is a great moment. I also want to mention, this is this, for me, this is Erlen Josephson's finest hour. Oh yeah. I mean, all of all the players we've mentioned, like Lee Bowman and BB Anderson and, and, uh, and those Harriet, folks, yeah, and Harriet and Harriet Anderson, um, BRB and BB Anderson. Um, Josephson has been one of the Bergman players, we've seen him in a, a number of things. We'll see him again in, in uh, Fanny and Alexander, but this is the best. I mean, and and I, I know when you think of Swedish actors, you think Max von Sydow, of course, but but he really earned his stripes. And the other part about him looking at his career. He was not one of the actors who went to Hollywood. If you look at if you look at the foreign films of the sixties and seventies, Ullman did it, did it, Von Sydow did it, BB Anderson did it. Where you know you see them in the international star big budget picture, and Josephson never really left Scandinavia. He stayed and did his films. He did, I guess he didn't want to show up and do one scene in a World War II drama, <laughs> you know, get and get more money for that than he would for yeah. something like Seas yeah. from a Marriage. But uh, but no, he he's great in this, and yeah. to to be able to you know spar and play tennis with uh with the magnitude of somebody like Lee Volman, and I think listeners, you can tell I really I really dig Lee Volman. Uh, so uh, yeah, this this is his best moment by far, and and I hope before we finish up on this i do want to bring up sarah band a little bit yeah well uh, so that was something that i had in my notes as well i haven't seen that yet though i didn't have time to watch that also so i would love to get your thoughts on it uh i will say though um you're spot on i love the sparseness of every uh set but also the way it's shot bergman knows what he's doing this is a lot of mid shots you don't get a full shot of anyone's body this is close-ups and the camera follows them as they pace it's almost like um what william friedkin used to do with stuff like the french connection he would tell the guy i'm not telling you what the blocking is just follow the action you know what i mean and that's what it's bergman so, it's so funny you mentioned i'm sorry i'm on a side one of the films that just came out on blu-ray this week and i was able to revisit on a uh, kino lorber but um william friedkin's remake of 12 angry men oh yeah 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 which was made for cable, which I, which has a, a multicultural cast. It's not just all 12 angry white dudes, but um, in George C. Scott and Jack Lemmon are two of the big names in this among others, but, and, and it's not a, it's, it's not Sidney Lamette and it doesn't try to be, but one of the things it has going for it, it was, he was able to use a handheld camera. And so you, you have these, he's able to the flow around the table a little easier than with a with a big camera that uh, Lament had to do in the late fifties. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and 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 this like I think Bergman's on sticks the whole time. Maybe some dolly work at, yeah. at times, but it's it's pretty still. But he's just panning across, following uh, either Lee Volman or um, uh, Erlen Josephson uh, as they're pacing and speaking, uh, or they might both be laying in bed next to each other, looking, and it's just on sticks, and you're just 
watching it. Like he frames it in a way where it's like, don't focus on anything else. There's nothing else to focus on. You don't need to see what this room looks like. You don't need to see what it's missing. You need to focus on what is happening. And so for as much as the set decoration and art design and things are for as much as Bergman or sorry, for as much as the, the uh, two lead performers are really pulling your focus. Bergman is also, you know, subtextually or however you want to put it like subversively almost with the camera work forcing you to focus and it is I can't stress enough this is three hours of couples of a couple talking I mean I don't think there's a scene where they're not like there are no cries and whispers like you know violins (laughs) close up and just stillness this is conversation for three hours and it is thrilling to me yeah. You're saying they're not staring out of a window and talking with the same tone as the killing of a sacred deer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, I will say this, though. You just reminded me. I don't know why that reminded me of this. Um, but there is uh, one scene I want to bring up, and then I'll let you talk about Saraband and we'll move on. Sure, sure. Um, but there's one scene where, like I said, Lee Volman is uh, a like divorce therapist. or so, I don't know the exact job, but she, she works with people uh, considering or going through divorces. Yeah. And she's sitting with this uh, gray haired, older, not old, but like older woman, um, probably in her 50s or something, comes to uh, talk to Marianne about her loveless marriage. And she has kind of this monologue uh, as Ullman's just listening to her. And she just gives this incredible monologue. I thought her performance was so subdued and perfect, mm-hmm. just like someone going into a therapist might be. She doesn't get hysterical. She just clinically talks about what her relationship is and just is super honest. And that actually really stood out to me. And that's not even a scene with Lee Volman and Erlen Eric or uh, Josephson. This is yep. like a third, per- like just a third person thrown into the mix. And of course, the whole point is to like it starts to influence Marianne's mind, and you know, like it, it plays into the overall narrative. But man, it's so good, and it is a direct line to Bummerville, dude. It's so sad, <laughs> yep. but it's so good. And I, before you get to Sarah Ben, I also want to say yeah, this yeah. was this was remade um, last year, and I have not yep. watched this, but it's it is a um, it is a uh, uh, miniseries. With For HBO, and I think it's is it Jessica Chastain and Oscar Jessica Isaacs? Jessica Chastain okay. and Oscar Isaacs. I have I have not seen it either. I need to get HBO Plus if anybody wants to do something about that. But because um, <laughs> I, yeah, I was I was kind of I was like oh gosh no. I was like, will this get more people to watch the original? I don't know. I I adore both actors, and uh, so I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see how they they. I'm sure, and I'm sure it's fine. But I, you know, I, I was afraid that this would bring out my uh, inner D bag and go, well, you know, it's based on a, if they made a six hour version of it, I'd be impressed. But, you know, I, anyway, I'm 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 looking for I'm hopefully going to be checking it out soon. I don't know when it gets a, a, a home video release because I'm still Mr. Physical Copies. But uh, but yeah, I was I was intrigued with it because of the of the two actors. But I kept telling people. Please, please find the original. Please find it. And, and again, if you, I had a great moment. Uh, I bring up my daughter again. And this was, it was just kind of the way it fell. I was going through the box set. And this is uh, Criterion's Bergman Cinema. 
I bought it. They didn't send it to me, so I'm mentioning it. Uh, but I, I'm going through the miniseries version, the six-hour version of Scenes from a Marriage, just enthralled, been down in the screening room all day. And like the last 20 minutes, my daughter comes down. She was probably 18 at the time. And it was great because she just kind of came down, sat down with me. The only thing she asked is, what is this? I went, it's, it's scenes from a marriage and it's, it's almost over. And she watched it. And the last 20 minutes of Erlen Jefferson and Lee Volman, and uh, don't, don't want to give it away, but it's, it's just great watching these two perform. Dude. And so and real quick, I know you're going to yeah. get in the Sarah band, but I do want to say the end left me so bittersweet in a good way. I mean, it's yep. perfect yep. because you, part of you wants X to happen. Okay. Yes. Yep. But you know, for their own mental health, why needs to, to happen. Yeah. And the end yep. is this bittersweet tightrope walk of X and Y. Do you know yep. what I mean? Yes, Holy absolutely. Holy shit. When that movie absolutely. ended, I was like, oh my God, I love so, this. So we we finished the film and she's got questions. What is this? And I started explaining it to her and da, 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 da. And uh, I want actually I wound up giving her the script as a as a gift. And so because that's what you do with your daughter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Give her give her, her honey, this one. Read, yeah. read some Bergman. Enjoy this. But yeah. and she loved marriage stories. So anyway, um, in 2003, Bergman reunites Ullman and Josephson again for Swedish TV. And they make a sequel to two scenes from a marriage called Sarah Band. And it picks up 30 years later with these two characters. And I was so, I guess it's, I make fun of sequels. You're talking to a guy that unabashedly loves the color of money. And I love this because it's just, there's, they have, they have, they're older, they're slower, but they still, they pick up as if no time has left. And as I was watching this film again from the box set, probably like a couple days later, again, the last, and this is shorter, friends. So you can, it's, you know, this is going to be a sprint compared to even the, the theatrical version of Scenes from a Marriage. But I'm watching the last 20 minutes, and here again, here comes my daughter, and she comes down, stops, and went, Hey, I know those two. <laughs> They're older. I went, Yeah, it's, it's Sarah Band. Sit down. She watches the last 20 minutes, and same thing. We start talking dad daughter movie stuff. And so, anyway, um, my my daughter's introduction to Bergman was those scenes and and the uh, well on top of the jokes we were the only family that laughed out loud if you remember in Muppets Most Wanted they have a part of what has happened to every character since the last Muppet movie and there is with the Swedish chef black and white on the beach playing chess with death and we were the only three who laughed hysterically because we knew that was from the seventh seal so <laughs> she, she so knows awesome, the jokes though. <laughs> yeah she knows the jokes and she watched you know two bergman endings back to back and i'm like well that that's a start so. <laughs> yeah you should i mean again i haven't watched sarah bend um i i literally watched these i watched scenes from a marriage like friday and i watched Fanny and Alexander, like yesterday or something. We're, Oof, we're recording this woo. the weekend before it comes out, by the way. But um, but yeah, so I I kind of was kind of forced through those cr cries and whispers. I got a little more time to think about. Uh, but uh, yeah, that uh, Saraband is, um, I think technically, is that his 
official last proper work? I'm I'm gonna look well, this up. I mean that that's after he did a film called Welcome to Verona, which I've not seen. He did a lot of stuff for Swedish television. So, well, well I'll just say this: according to uh, IMDb, it's Sarabon, and then he did a video documentary short called Onset Home Movies. Um, yeah, but uh, but it, 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 regardless, um, Sarabon is the last one. But uh, everything he did prior to that, up like after Fanny Alexander, were TV movies. So the last film we're actually going to be talking about is what a lot of people consider his swan song, so to speak. His last great film, you know. All right, that's today's episode. We did movies five and six in our Ingmar Bergman marathon, Cries and Whispers, and Scenes from a Marriage. I hope you guys enjoyed Matthew Sosi and I's conversation. Um, as I said, next week, I'm going to have Matthew Putman on. Uh, he is a musician and uh, a lover of movies. So we will talk a bit about music and about movies and all kinds of stuff. And then uh, after that, the following week, I'm going to do the last installment of Ingmar Bergman. Uh, Matthew Sosi and I will do Fanny and Alexander, and you'll be able to hear that last part. As Sosi just said at the end, it is kind of known as his last great film, though Sosi would disagree a bit with that. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, uh, so all that to say, definitely go check out uh, Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. Also, I can't put that over enough. I thought that movie was so awesome, and I've already spent plenty of time talking about it uh, earlier. But man, I just really loved that movie. And uh, it's funny because my friend Brandon Pritchard texted me, and he was like, dude, have you seen this yet? And I'm like, no. And he's like, dude, it's so good. And everything he said was totally true. Oh my gosh, it's so great. Uh, definitely go check that out, like I said, on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, that is going to be there. I'm looking forward to new marathons, so we got to get this Bergman stuff out of the way. I'm excited to talk to Matthew Putman. There's so many things to talk about. There's so many movies to talk about, everybody. But for today, I'm going to wrap it up here. I just want you all to know, thank you so much. I love you guys. Good night. Good luck. Take it easy. <laughs>